0: Okay, we may as well get started. We're missing a speaker, but hopefully he will arrive uh, by the time it's his turn at the podium. Uh, I'm Chris Edwards, I'm editor of Cato's website, downsizinggovernment.org. Thanks uh, uh, for all uh, you folks coming today. Uh, Infrastructure is certainly a priority issue for the new administration. Uh, President Trump has repeatedly called for a trillion dollar uh, infrastructure plan. Uh, We don't know exactly what that means. Uh, Does he mean a trillion dollars in new federal government spending, uh, or does he mean the plan put together by his advisors, Wilbur Ross and Peter Navarro, uh, that called for a tax credit for new investment in infrastructure? Uh, I'm not a fan of either of those approaches, so I'm hoping that the White House is open to different ideas on infrastructure reform, such as the ideas that our panelists are going to be talking about today. Uh, Everyone agrees that America... Uh, needs to improve the efficiency of its infrastructure investment. Uh, Trump has talked about deregulation as one way uh, to reduce the cost of infrastructure uh, and thus boost uh, the quality of our infrastructure investment. Uh, He's talked about, for example, reducing the cost of highway building so we would get uh, more and better highways. And so I think that's very positive. the main reform that other nations have pursued to upgrade their infrastructure in recent years uh, is privatization and public private partnerships. Uh, for example, it's been three decades now since Margaret Thatcher privatized Heathrow Airport uh, in Britain, which has launched uh, a global sort of revolution uh, in reforming airport uh, management. Uh, half of Europe's airports are now private. Uh, Donald Trump has called US uh, airports, which are owned by the government, Uh, in in all the 50 states. He's called them third world. Uh, So what's Donald Trump going to do about that? Uh, We will see, but I hope he uh, looks at some of these uh, international reform trends uh, and adopts uh, some of these uh, Thatcher-style reforms here in the United States for our infrastructure. Uh, Our panel today will will discuss what Trump may do and should do uh, on infrastructure reforms. Uh, We have experts here on highways, on public transit, and uh, on aviation. Uh, in my own writing on infrastructure, I've borrowed heavily from all of these speakers today. Uh, I would encourage you to uh, go to the websites of Cato and uh, the institutions represented here today uh, to learn more about infrastructure. So I'll, I'll introduce uh, our four speakers, and then uh, we will get uh, going. Uh, our first speaker is Ron Ott, who is a research fellow at the Maryland Public Policy Institute, Uh, For many years, uh, Ron was at Heritage Foundation, and he was uh, the go-to guy for pro-market reforms uh, on infrastructure. Uh, When I write about transportation issues, I always go back and look and see what Ron has said over the years to make sure I'm sort of on the right track. Back in the Reagan administration, uh, Ron was the associate director uh, for privatization from 1987 uh, to 1989. Uh, Ron has a PhD from uh, Indiana University. Our next speaker will be Mark uh, Scribner. He's a senior fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Uh, Mark writes about infrastructure investment, transportation safety, privatization, uh, and innovation such as automated vehicles uh, and unmanned aircrafts. Uh, Mark's writings on air traffic control uh, are crucial to the current debate uh, about air traffic control reform, which I think will be a big uh, topic of discussion this year. Uh, Mark received an undergrad degree in economics and philosophy from uh, GWU. Uh, Our third speaker will be uh, Baruch Figenbaum, who's assistant director of transportation policy at Reason Foundation. Uh, Previously, Baruch uh, was on Capitol Hill. He handled transportation issues for Representative Lynn uh, Westmoreland. Uh, Baruch earned a master's degree in city and regional planning from the Georgia Institute of Technology. Uh, And our cleanup speaker uh, this morning will be Cato's own Randall O'Toole. Uh, He's an expert uh, on urban growth planning uh, and transportation issues. He's written tons and tons uh, of books and studies on those topics uh, over the years. Uh, Randall's explored how federal subsidies distort uh, local transportation uh, choices. uh, And his writings on urban transit uh, really have been crucial to debunking a lot of the fairy tales uh, you will see uh, on uh, light rail systems, uh, in city after city across the United States. Randall's been really crucial in that debate. Uh, so I think each speaker is going to talk for about 10 minutes, so then we, we can uh, hopefully have some time for a QA. Again, thanks for coming.
1: Thank you, Chris, for that kind introduction, and also thank you for inviting me to be here today. Uh, this is an interesting time to talk about infrastructure. Um, it was partway through the electoral campaign where Hillary Clinton announced that she was in favor of a half a trillion dollar infrastructure spending proposal that she believed would create great jobs and get the American economy on the move again. A week later, candidate Trump, who thinks larger, Bigger announced that he's in favor of a trillion dollar infrastructure plan. Since that date, uh, there hasn't been much detail provided on that. And so we're still kind of guessing. But this sort of also gives us a chance to maybe do some recommending. (laughs) Because when you announce that you have a trillion dollar infrastructure plan, what you do, what you set off uh, in in America, and, and globally for that matter, is a huge money scramble. And the money scramble has already started. Um, The the National Governors Association has provided the White House with over 400 shovel-ready projects that are ready to go, totaling about $120 billion. The uh, Senator Schumer has come out with the opposition's plan also for a $1 trillion, which, as you would suspect, (coughs) uh, uh, is is largely oriented toward his particular constituency. And of course, then there's Donald Trump's. More and more of these things are coming through, as everybody believes that there's going to be a huge amount of money on the table, and they want to get it. (coughs) But um, one of the important things that Trump has let us know and a few details he has is that it will be incentivized by $137 billion of, of, of tax credits to encourage the private sector to get more involved in infrastructure, provide the financing, uh, the management, and presumably the operation of these things. And this raises an important issue in infrastructure in America, because we really have two kinds of infrastructure. We have private infrastructure, when I say infrastructure, we're typically talking about physical long-lived assets to provide the society and people with a flow of useful services. So with private infrastructure, we have housing, retail, uh, establishments, shopping centers, ho- hotels, farms, not-for-profit hospitals, food service, commercial airlines, uh, power generation, oil and gas pipelines, refinery, freight railroads, and so on and so on. <laughs> and then in public infrastructure, we have generally roads, transit, airports, air traffic control, passenger rail, water supply, wastewater treatment, and so on. Now, there's a difference between the first and the second, and it's not just the ownership. The items listed in the first are not cited as a problem. And in fact, if anything, you tend to overproduce that kind of infrastructure. And many policies, for example, agriculture policies in America, are designed to curb food production. It's very difficult to build a new hospital without getting approval because there there would otherwise, they believe, be a glut of hospitals. And if anything, the problem we have in housing production is we tend to overproduce, creating nasty cycles. In public infrastructure, however, (coughs) these are where we have all the deficiencies, where, where we have shortages, where we have... Uh, uh, it's terrible conditions potholes bridges that are technically obsolete water systems that don't work and um, the uh, uh, and this is where a lot of people talk about the infrastructure crisis. But the question is, is it really an infrastructure crisis or is it a crisis of socialism? Since all the things that are problematic and all the things that sort of don't lend themselves to easy solutions year after year are in fact publicly owned, (laughs) and all the things in the private sector are not perceived as a as a, uh, as a problem. So it's sort of like capitalism versus socialism in this. <laughs> and I think we need to make that distinction very clear as we look for the different sort of policies. <laughs> now, the real question is, since there's going to be this huge money scramble, uh, how are we going to make decisions about all these projects? Are, and by the way, <laughs> we have the other threat is that the Republicans in the House are threatening, and may very well likely, in the middle of this year, end their ban on earmarks. They came very close to doing it at the beginning of this session, and they weren't defeated. They simply put the issue off until later this year. With $1,000 on the table, I think there's going to be a free-for-all, because Congress wants to be part of the action as well. And so this suggests that there is the real risk to, to waste this money. So my suggestion is, you start to look at um, um, we here—start <laughs> to look at mechanisms that have already been created and implemented to rationalize the selection of infrastructure projects because there will be many more proposals than you will ever have money to do. <laughs> and an example of that is one that was just implemented in, in Virginia. Uh, in 2016 and has now been operating for for two years to create a performance-based system for selecting infrastructure projects. Now, these are only in transportation. Uh, and includes transit, at, both transit and roads. Uh, but something like this could easily be done for things like wastewater treatments, airports, and so on and so on. It's the idea of coming up with an objective cost benefit standards to rank projects by their particular value. <laughs> now, in 2014, Virginia enacted <coughs> what's called H- HB, that's House Bill 2. Uh, uh, which is then was impl- Im- actually implemented in 2016 for the first time. It covers the entire state. Congest- congestion is one of six, congestion mitigation is one of six factors that's considered in any project. All the measures are quantitative, and congestion mitigation must predominate in major urbanized areas, and the factors are weighted by region. Now, this, the, the, the program is now called Smart Scale. And the six measures are safety, congestion mitigation, accessibility, environmental quality, economic development, and land use coordination. <laughs> and since all parts of the state are, are different in, the, in their problems, it has been, uh, it's, the state has been divided up into four different regions where the weights are different. Now, in category A, which includes only three metropolitan areas in the, in, in the state, Hampton Roads, Washington, DC, Northern Virginia suburbs, and Fredericksburg, which was really part of Northern Virginia at this point. And in that case, congestion mitigation counts for 45% of the score for different particular projects. So congestion must predominate, and the other factors are are relatively minor in comparison. Once you get into the smaller cities where there isn't much congestion, the other factors take over. And when you get to categories C and D, which are largely rural, congestion counts for virtually nothing because they they don't have a congestion problem. (coughs) So the reason for this is to hold all regions Uh, harmless in terms of the money they get from the state. Because what happens is when you start talking about congestion mitigation to rural legislators and officials, they they say, oh, you're going to ship all the money to Northern Virginia, or you're going to ship all the money to Norfolk. This allows everybody to tailor their state money uh, to the particular needs in their community now in each of the factors we have (coughs) uh, several sub factors for example in accessibility it's access to jobs uh, which is the the most critical part uh uh, access for the disadvantaged and modal choices which is a sap to the transit industry environment we have air quality and energy Uh, economic development (coughs) section we have Uh, support for economic development, intermodal access, and travel time reliability, which also relates to congestion mitigation. Now, how the process works is that (coughs) all the projects that are put forth are new projects or substantial revitalized projects that will cover the next six years, and it includes transit. Uh, Metropolitan uh, MPOs and local governments submit their particular projects to the VDOT, uh, VDOT scores and measures the dollars, accor- measures the benefits per dollar <coughs> according to the scale that applies to each reason over the six different factors. And then VDOT selects the p- projects that are in the top in all of these different regions, and then they submit them to the Commonwealth Transportation Board. And the Commonwealth Transportation Board, which is a p- essentially a political board, then goes through these, Recommendations and either accepts them or, or makes changes as appropriate. So we've done this now in Virginia <coughs> for 2016 and 2017, and of the 8.5 billion dollars worth of projects that were submitted to be scored, uh, only 2.7 billion were actually approved for 2016 and 2017, <coughs> and they've been they've been announced so far. And obviously, <coughs> those who were the losers say, well, this smart scale process really isn't any good. It's a flawed position. But I think generally everybody's happy. The elected officials who, who voted for it are, are pleased, and uh, it seems to be working. And most of the things that I could see make a great deal of sense in, in terms of either keeping or, or getting rid of. Now, what's important in closing is that these quantitative measures are only as valuable as what goes into them. What goals you set for yourself? In the case of Virginia, it was congestion mitigation was the most important part because congestion is a very serious problem in two of our in the two major metropolitan areas of the country. But Maryland, for example, which also has congestion, but has a different political philosophy than we have, just came up with their set of proposals uh, and, and in fact. Uh, not only are they proposals for guidelines, but they are enacted into legislation. It's the legislation that says, which means that the government can't change anything because if he does, he violates the law. But these, uh, as you can imagine, with, with the very liberal legislature in Maryland, that the, 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 the scale factors that they include, the factors, are largely pro-environment, pro-transit, pro-bicycle, pro-walking. And as Governor Hogan pointed out, it would be almost impossible under this standard for Merlin DOT to approve any highway projects uh, because it, the thing is so biased. But again, this is a real problem because it's enacted into law. And he he threatened to veto it, he sent it back, he did veto it, he sent it back, and it came back with a with a veto safe a majority, and so it is now the law. <laughs> so this is a case where setting up performance goals, if you're not careful, could really really backfire on you. Well, with that, let me conclude and look forward to any questions later on. Thanks.
2: Hi, everybody. Uh, thank you, Ron, and uh, thank you, Chris, uh, for moderating. Um, I'm going to talk about, as, and as sort of Ron alluded to, we have this we have this issue of trying to apparently find a trillion dollars worth of infrastructure projects uh, over the next ten years. Uh, from and this is coming from both parties. Um, what I want to talk about today is getting the most bang for the buck and really trying to shift some of these costs and project risks away from the taxpayers. So, and you've you've heard um, Speaker Ryan. Uh, and uh, Leader McConnell both say that that trillion dollars will not be a trillion dollars of new federal spending. So the two areas I'm gonna talk about today of getting the most bang for your buck out of infrastructure investment are financing reform uh, and regulatory reform. Um, with respect to financing, and this is an important distinction between financing and funding, financing is, is where uh, these entities, these government entities uh, with uh, a private sector partner uh, enter the credit markets uh, and use debt financing to construct uh, these infrastructure projects. Contrast funding is is uh, coming right out of the Treasury. Um, so. Infrastructure financing and public-private partnerships. So these, these can, and they do, shift costs and risk away from uh, the general taxpayer. Um, now, one problem for uh, increasing uh, private sector involvement in this sector is that uh, on the public side, they're able to ac- access uh, tax-free municipal bonds, uh, while the private sector yet, uh, generally does not enjoy such a tax advantage. Um, The ideal solution here would be uh, to to level financing and eliminate uh, the municipal bond tax exemption, but uh, that is uh, politically unrealistic, at least at this point. So the second best solution here is to expand tax-free debt financing uh, for public-private partnerships. And we already have uh, a thing called private activity bonds that were stood up in the 2005 uh, Safety Lou Highway Bill reauthorization. And what PABs uh, do is they allow the private sector to borrow in a way that is similar to the public sector. Um, however, we have a lifetime cap of, uh, a national lifetime cap of $15 billion. Um, and as of uh, January 23rd of this year, according to the Federal Highway Administration, $10.86 billion has already been allocated. So for uh, the administration and Congress to greatly increase uh, private sector financing, that cap is going to need to be raised uh, substantially. Um, And there's a solution, lifting the cap, while also potentially expanding uh, asset class eligibility, expanding the types of projects that are eligible to receive PABs, which right now is basically limited to certain types of surface transportation projects. So uh, but we already have an example. And uh, the current administration could look at the past administration, uh, which had a proposal in 2015 uh, to create something uh, that would have been called uh, qualified public infrastructure bonds, or QPIBs. And that would have expanded eligible projects uh, into airports, ports, uh, water and wastewater systems, uh, uncapped the issuance, um, and eliminated the expiration date for these bonds. So if the goal is increasing private sector investment uh, in in public purpose infrastructure in the near term, a new QPIB-style bond uh, uh, framework uh, should be created uh, to level the financing between the public and private sectors. Now, another area, um, this would be um, uh, public financing reform. uh, But we have a a forthcoming FAA reauthorization bill. And one thing that we would like to see uh, at CEI is uh, modernizing what's known as the passenger facility charge, uh, which is a local airport user charge. uh, And uh, it helps to reduce the uh, federal taxpayer burden. So right now, we have the PFC, um, but it's capped at uh, a maximum of $4.50 per employment. And that's been unchanged since uh, 2000. um, And inflation has eroded about uh, half of the buying power of the PFC. Um, Many airports are approaching their debt limits um, so if we were to modernize the PFC to eliminate that cap uh, and allow the airports to raise their, their passenger facility charge, that, those PFC revenues can be used to back bonds, allowing uh, the airports to reaccess the credit markets that they're uh, soon to be shut out of if they haven't already been. Um, large hubs, large airports uh, have, already, have said for years that they're willing to give up their Federal Airport Improvement Program uh, grants in exchange for an uncapped PFC. Um, and uh, fortunately, we, uh, uh, last week, we saw legislation introduced from an unlikely duo uh, of duo, uh, ranking member of the House Transportation Infrastructure Committee, Peter DeFazio, uh, and uh, Thomas Massey, a Republican member of the, uh, of the uh, committee, uh, and their bill would uncap the PFC while also proportionally reducing uh, AIP funding. Now, moving on to regulatory reform at USDOT, um, I think there's, uh, there's, uh, I'm going to go broad on what we should do uh, to move in a general positive direction. um, But then I'm going to give some specifics uh, at the end. Um, So uh, many of you know that Executive Order uh, 12866, back in 1993, signed by President Clinton, Ordered regulatory agencies to, whenever possible, specify performance objectives rather than specifying the behavior or manner of compliance that regulated entities must adopt. So this performance-based uh, approach to regulation has been uh, has been uh, encouraged for uh, for many years now. Um, but uh, despite attempts to move away from the more onerous prescriptive uh, safety regulations uh, at DOT, uh, the agencies at DOT. Um, uh, have at best been uneven in moving towards this approach. I can give a few examples. Um, So the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, which regulates auto safety in the United States, their federal motor vehicle safety standards Uh, particularly their crash worthiness standards, are generally performance-based. For instance, uh, for the airbags, they're not telling you how to design your airbags. Uh, They set a a force threshold, uh, and then the automakers can decide uh, how to meet that standard with whatever technology they want. Um, In contrast, at the FAA, uh, there have been efforts to move away from the more prescriptive uh, safety certification Uh, rules that have been on the books for many years. Um, And we did see, uh, in recent months, uh, small aircraft certification reform that moved in this performance-based direction. Um, Unfortunately, when we're seeing things like uh, emerging technologies, uh, especially unmanned aircraft systems, uh, you're seeing uh, the FAA continue to turn out very onerous prescriptive rules that restrict all sorts of operations, uh, and the only way to get around those uh, is to uh, request and receive a waiver, um, and uh, that is a very difficult process. Now, the Federal Railroad Administration has some performance-based rules, um, uh, bridge inspection management plans uh, are performance-based, for instance. Um, and it, it proposed in uh, late 2006 uh, alternative passenger rail, uh, rail uh, car uh, crashworthiness standards that would have adopted a performance-based approach and allowed uh, the introduction of new technologies that could have improved uh, the design of American passenger rail cars. But at the you know while they were developing that proposal uh, in 2016, they also proposed a rule that would require a minimum two-person crew, um, and that cuts against an ongoing effort uh, and mandate from the FRA uh, that railroads install um, a positive train control technology, which is a, a suite of, of uh, communications and automation technologies uh, that uh, one of the business benefits the FRA has cited uh, in the past. Uh, is reducing crew sizes. Um, In the same way we're moving toward uh, uh, self-driving cars, Uh, in the future there's no reason we shouldn't be uh, able to move toward uh, self-driving trains. Um, But uh, this was clearly political, uh, done at the behest of, uh, of railroad unions. Um, And that's the sort of thing, these prescriptive rules that don't allow uh, new technology uptake, these are the kinds of things we could see, really forestalling innovation, driving up costs, and really disadvantaging uh, consumers. Um, So broad reform, I think Congress should require uh, in legislation a comprehensive regulatory review of of, uh, the the DOTs uh, and and the agency's uh, safety regulations and develop performance-based alternatives to the remaining prescriptive rules. And then to also require that all new rules be outcome-based, performance-based. Um, uh, and like I was talking about, special care needs to be paid to some of these emerging technologies uh, that may not be subject to regulation at this time, uh, self-driving cars, uh, for instance, are not. Um, but uh, they soon will be. And uh, there is a real risk of adopting uh, uh, non-technology-neutral prescriptive standards that could really... Uh, uh, cause us to forego the many benefits these technologies promise uh, for the future. Um, And I could just name some specific rules that should be withdrawn. Uh, The uh, National Highway Traffic Safety Administration's Uh, uh, vehicle-to-vehicle communications proposed rule which would specify a specific technology aimed at uh, warning drivers of of hazards. Now the problem with this rule is is that it does not allow alternative compliance with alternative technologies and it also basically ignores uh, the rise in automation that can actually you can actually have a computer uh, directly avoid these collisions rather than just providing a hazard warning, whether that's a chime or a uh, tactile feedback in the steering wheel or something to the driver. Um, the FRA uh, two-person crew, uh, crew rule makes no sense. Uh, it should also be withdrawn. Um, and then uh, a final example would be the uh, the Surface Transportation Board's uh, proposed reciprocal switching uh, 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 change. Uh, And what they did, basically, you had uh, freight railroads, which were largely deregulated uh, in the early 1980s. Um, uh, For many, for about 30 years, you had a standard that required a a showing of anti-competitive conduct on the part of the railroads in order for the Surface Transportation Board uh, to force railroads to interchange each other's traffic. Um, now, uh, over 30 years, there have been no uh, there's been no uh, 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 there's been no evidence of, of any anti anti competitive conduct on the part of the railroads. So the STB's solution uh, to this was to simply eliminate the anti competitive conduct requirement and allow it to arbitrarily impose. Uh, uh, these switching arrangements, and really, these are backdoor price controls. Uh, and these are this is another example of, of agencies going in the wrong direction, while also simultaneously being ordered to go in a more uh, sensible, economically efficient, performance-based direction. And finally, um, uh, President Trump, in his uh, in his uh, joint uh, session to Congress address, uh, said, you know, he he did tout. Private financing, which I thought was I, I was good. There weren't many specifics, or there were no specifics, um, but at least he was talking about it. Um, but one thing that did trouble me is that one of the two principles he said would guide his infrastructure plan are Buy America uh, provisions. Um, this is a mistake. Uh, this is all. This will do. Will needlessly drive up the costs. Of infrastructure projects, and we've seen this play out before with the stimulus uh, uh, under President Obama. You saw uh, between 2009 and 2011, uh, due to these Buy America steel and iron provisions, uh, you saw uh, costs uh, uh, increase uh, by uh, 5.7 billion, I believe. Um, that's pure waste. That's money that could have been that could have been spent elsewhere, could have been used uh, for other projects. Um, and these are this is exactly the opposite direction you'd want to be going because under the uh, under credit assistance federal credit assistance uh, such as uh, private activity bonds the, pub- the private sector partner would be required to abide by these Buy America provisions unless they receive a waiver. So this uh, the the Buy America uh, or the call to strengthen that uh, cuts against uh, the president's call for more private sector investment. So I think this approach really needs to be uh, rethought uh, at the administration uh, and in Congress um, uh, if we do want to see private sector investment really take off. Uh, So with that, uh, I will conclude. And I look forward to any questions.
3: Hello and uh, thanks very much for attending. Uh, my name is Brooke Feigenbaum, uh, Assistant Director of Transportation Policy for the Reason Foundation. And I also want to thank uh, Chris and also Randall for inviting me here to speak on this fun topic, air traffic control corporatization. So the first two presentations by Ron and Mark uh, focused on ideas that we should be doing and things that would be good to move us forward. This is actually a proposal that is going to be introduced in Congress. It was introduced last year past the House Transportation Committee and is probably our best chance to do something big over the next four years, in my opinion. So it's a little bit complicated. The air traffic control is a little different than surface transportation. So I'm going to go over it and hopefully um, if, I, if there are any questions, we can answer them at the, at the end. So just want to provide fabulous. Just want to provide a presentation outline here, um, why I think this is a chance for meaningful reform, uh, what's wrong with the current air traffic control system. We've had some folks who are neutral or opposed say, oh, our air traffic control system is wonderful. We don't need to do anything to it. Uh, that's not true. Uh, what uh, ATC corporatization would actually solve, and then some examples of problems we have now in how ATC would actually solve those problems. So when I say a chance for meaningful reform, there's a lot of great things we could do in infrastructure, some of which the Trump administration has proposed and some of which I wish they would propose. Uh, so, for example, unlocking more federal federal barriers to private surface transportation uh, improvements and investments. There are actually quite a few barriers. There is a lot of surface transportation solutions that we could have if we would just make it easier for the private sector. Every time I I see a slide sometimes and people are like, well, the problem is that we don't have enough opportunities. No, the problem is we have laws that are preventing those opportunities from being taken advantage of. Um, Private financing to rebuild airports, that's a little bit different, but that goes to Trump's comment about the New York airports and how some of them are kind of decrepit and could be better and why they are that way. Uh, Encouraging P3s for inland waterway um, reconstruction, that's a whole nother issue that I think would be interesting. Um, Tolling to rebuild the interstate system has proven a little controversial, but it would be a good idea. And then, of course, air traffic control reform. And what I'm saying is I think air traffic control reform would be the most significant of these challenges in these changes at this time. Um, The timing is right. So when I'm saying that, I'm saying that we have support from political leaders both the president and Chairman Schuster of the House. I also think there's support in the Senate. They're not on the record as of yet, but my sense is there's support from talking to people there. Um, Think tanks, uh, obviously, on the right in terms of Cato, Heritage, Reason, uh, even in the middle and in some cases on the left or whatever we consider Brookings. Uh, Support from trade groups, Airlines for America. Obviously, the airlines have a big... uh, Very important when we talk about air traffic control, because if there's no airlines, there's no commercial air travel. So having them on board is important. And then when I say unexpected places, I thought that if we had support from these groups, it would be a slam dunk. Politically, it's turning out to be a little more challenging, but the Air Traffic Controllers Union and the Airline Pilots Association, and the reason those groups are by and large on board, especially the Air Traffic Controllers Union, is the current situation basically leaves them open to government shutdowns, which means they don't get paid and there's uncertainty. And even though they're part of a union, and typically unions are not big fans of privatization or any, any type of corporatization, the uncertainty has gotten so bad for them with this current system that they're like, please get me something else, even if, we have ish, even if they have to give up some of their union-ish protections. So what's the problem? OK, so there's really three main problems here. One is the FAA is the government agency designed around the precautionary principle. I know that's shocking—a government agency designed to be precautionary. Uh, they're hesitant to embrace major changes for the 21st century, including what we need to upgrade the aviation system. Uh, the air traffic management um, should be using richer information. It uses right now what we call a single locus of control, and because of the various technology and upgrades and computer software over the last 50 years, it can now get to a more robust system. Um, Examples, GPS automates the separation of air traffic control, meaning planes could fly closer together safety. More capacity of runways, possibly meaning not having to build another runway, which is a very political difficult process. Landing protocols, also improving the amount of planes you can land. This is a big one, serving rural airports at a lower cost. Uh, Some of the rural airports are concerned because they're losing service now. Uh, with aviation in general, because they're expensive to maintain, um, this there are actually solutions to that that we can implement, but the FAA is not proving open to those solutions at this time, and that's really more for political reasons. And then ability to provide better weather information to pilots. The second problem is the FAA has trouble attracting top talent. Government salaries are typically lower than they would be in the private sector, especially in a technologically Uh, complicated environment such as this. And so there's been a notable brain drain over the past 15 years in particular. The other problem, which I I should have put on this slide, is that working for the government does not really give you a chance to be creative or innovate, especially the FAA. You basically have to do the same thing and stick in your box for your career. And that's not real attractive to most of the more educated, more sophisticated folks that are coming uh, into the market right now. Uh, And then the third problem uh, is the micromanagement of FAA by politicians. So basically, most politicians, unless they're on the Transportation Committee, don't really have a great grasp of aviation because it's pretty complicated. And even if they do, they're not often looking out for the taxpayer's best interest, they're often looking out for their best interest, something else which I know will not shock you. There is oversight and interference from at least eight different sources right now, both transportation committees, both funding committees, uh, GAO, DOT, IG, the Inspector General, um, OMB, and the DOT executive. Uh, Maybe I should have put CBO on there as well. So it's really hard to operate a professional system when all of these folks are weighing in. Some of them have weighed in to say how bad the current system is, which is understandable. But if you're always going from negative report to negative report to negative report, it really makes it hard to make positive changes. And as a result, as I like to say, the FAA focuses on pleasing the political folks, not their aviation customers, the passengers, and that's who they should be focusing on. So how does ATC corporatization actually solve this problem? What it does is it separates the air traffic organization from the rest of the agency. So we're just spinning off that small part of the FAA. It actually brings FAA into guidance with ICAO recommendations, a worldwide aviation group. Every developed or first world country in the world has some form of separating, separated ATO from a safety regulator, except for the US. Let me say, say that again. Every first world developed country, be it here, be it in Europe, be it Canada, be it wherever, has separated these agencies because they recognize that it doesn't belong. We are the only one that has not done this. Some have separated them in different ways. They're not always corporate. Uh, sometimes they're a different type of nonprofit, but they're all separated. And the majority have a, a corporatized or privatized system. And the best example is NAV Canada, which isn't to say we're going to copy Canada, because obviously we've got a few more people than they do. But if you look at their overall system and how it's actually lowered costs, it seems like a good system for the US. Um, We are a large geographic area like Canada, so there's some similarities there. How would it solve the problem in terms of funding? I think this is a a big question. And because there previously wasn't a revenue title, something that could not really be identified and something that's a sticking point for some issues. So what it would do is it would shift from funding air traffic control from aviation user taxes to chargers paid by aviation customers. And so what happens right now is the user taxes go into an aviation trust fund and must be appropriated. Now the problem with this, and we see this at Inland Waterways as well, is that doesn't mean that the appropriators, um, OMB, whoever, necessarily wants to provide the full funding. Sometimes they will hold back the funding because they decide they know best, which is very interesting. If there's a government shutdown, there's no funding. I'm sure we remember a few years ago, there was a whole thing with senators getting home from their districts, and magically they did certain things for aviation. Uh, but in theory, there's not funding if you have a government shutdown. could be diverted. Uh, the charges paid by aviation customers, it would perform to more of a user's pay, user benefit system, which is something that we at Reason, I know at Cato, also strongly support. And then it operates similar to the utility customers in that you pay for what you use. There's a direct link for how much an airline or a general aviation or a business jet or whatever, how much that particular operator is paying and how much they're getting in return, which is not something we see right now. Governance, another issue that is important. What the ATC corporatization does is it provides a governance board that represents key aviation stakeholders. Now, for some reason, there's been a lot of controversy and people think this board is made up only of the airlines. That could not be further from the truth. The board is made up of airports, of ATC employees, of the flying public. There may be some changes. We're still seeing if airports have a technical slot or not in the full bill. But it's not only airlines. It's all members of the traveling public. And this board sets policies for corporate, corporation. So the board is the one actually setting the policies of knowledgeable aviation folks. It's not some politician. It's not some special interest group. It's not whoever happens to uh, you know, draw the long straw or however else some sort of arbitrary process would go. All right, and so I want to just briefly um, summarize again how ATC ATC corporatization solves the three problems that identified before. So again, FAA is a government agency designed around the precautionary principle. So the solution is to have air traffic control, which requires technology, which requires innovation, which requires new thinking to be moved outside into a separate entity. Uh, The FAA has trouble attracting top talent, The ATC Corporation can have a different pay structure. It can have less rigid restrictions. It can have more of a creative culture. Something that is going to be very important is there's a lot of demand for top talent uh, around the world now. And then the problem, politicians run the FAA. I like to be kind of blunt with that one because that's basically how it works. The ATC Corporation will have an independent board of users, folks who actually understand aviation, actually understand the problems, and are knowledgeable to actually fix them. So support is growing, but not everybody is quite on board yet. So I do want to mention some of the opponents and why I I think they're opposed. So the National Business Aviation Association, NBAA, um, is strongly opposed. And so it's actually interesting. Some of their users are classified as commercial, and some are classified as non-commercial. And so in this particular instance, the commercial users would pay more, although the non-commercial wouldn't. And the reason that there's even that classification is very stupid, but it would take me 10 minutes to go into, so I'm not going to do that. But they are heavy users of what's called the TRACON airspace. So 12% overall of the aviation, but 20% of the users in New York City during peak periods, which is obviously a major market and one that's heavily congested right now. And so our opinion approach is that users should pay regardless of the type of aircraft. Uh, some of the business jet people would say, "Well, we're not flying commercial, so you know we should be exempt." And we're saying everybody should pay. It should be a true users pay users benefit system. Uh, my my good friends at Delta Airlines that I have a flight on tomorrow, so I don't know if they're here. Uh, they were previously strongly opposed, um, but now in the recent statements, they're becoming more neutral. Very interesting. They quit the. Uh, Airlines for America group over this issue, and it looks like they might now be trying to make peace with the group. Uh, they were previously opposed because uh, they were concerned that they would be losing out. They have a good government affairs group, and they can easily influence politicians, and they really like that idea. So um, under the new CEO, things are a little bit different. We'll see where that goes. Uh current Democratic Party leadership, there's some opposition. Uh, They've been labeling it privatization, which I might like, but which isn't. It's corporatization. It's important to get that right. Um, We think there's some union issues there, even though the main unions actually support it. We think the other unions are jealous of these unions, and I don't even want to think about union politics, but something like that's going on. There also appears to be a rift um, between the current leadership in the House and moderate Democrats. I would say that a lot of the folks from the Clinton administration support this. They supported something similar but not as exhaustive in their administration as did folks in the Reagan administration, and we can go back and back. Uh, and, yeah, the non-transportation unions, as I mentioned. Uh, generally, neutral folks, um, well, we'll see. House Ways and Means, Incentive Finance. Appropriators don't like losing money. Uh, there's been some behind-the-scenes discussions. I think things might be getting a little better now, but the public statements certainly haven't been great. And then general aviation, there's a lot of misinformation. General aviation folks are not affected, it would be ideal if they were, but politically that would make this even more challenging and it's really not worth it at this point in time. So linking GA and business aviation is incorrect, although some folks try to do that. And finally, one additional challenge uh, is the scoring of the proposal. Uh, the CBO scores the bill as new spending, even though if the revenue title was correct, we don't think it would be. But obviously, if you're a Republican in a district, you're not going to vote for something that looks like it's increasing spending because you're inviting a primary challenge. So we're looking to OMB, seeing what we can do on that. Thank you very much.
4: Well, I was supposed to talk about transit, but uh, I'm going to start out talking about one of my favorite subjects, which are autonomous or self-driving cars. Uh, When I first started talking about self-driving cars here eight years ago, a lot of people thought it was science fiction. And then Google was nice enough to uh, send one of his cars to Cato headquarters to uh, take some people on rides. And uh, even more affirmingly, last August, the CEO of Ford...
2: autonomous vehicles as having as significant an impact on society as Ford's moving assembly line did over 100 years ago. And that's why today we're announcing Ford's intent to have a high volume SAE Level 4 fully autonomous vehicle in commercial operation in 2021 in a ride hailing or ride sharing service. Ford is going to be mass producing vehicles with full autonomy in five years. That means there's going to be no steering wheel, there's not going to be a gas
4: pedal, there's not going to be a brake pedal, and of course, a driver is not going to be required. Imagine that that's going to totally revolutionize everything about transportation, and it's going to make a big difference for transit, it's going to make make a big difference for what we do about roads. What kind of special infrastructure will autonomous vehicles need? Whether they're partially autonomous, meaning that they'll drive themselves sometimes but you can take over other times, or fully autonomous, meaning there's no steering wheel or other controls. Well, what kind of infrastructure will they need? It turns out they will not need any new infrastructure at all. They just need to have our existing infrastructure kept in good condition. Uh, The whole idea of smart highways, which the Obama administration wanted to fund, is already obsolete. Because all the smarts, all the intelligence, will be in the cars themselves. They won't need any electronic infrastructure to help guide them around. Now, I have a, a projection of whoops, what happened here, of how long it's going to be before we'll see, start seeing these cars. Uh, and I might be a little optimistic, but based on what uh, Mark Field said, I think we'll be able to buy a, a car that will drive itself under most circumstances uh, in about three or four years. And uh, soon after that, you'll be able to buy a kit for maybe $1,000 to take a late model car and convert it into a a self-driving car. Uh, Mark Field said 2021 for a full-time shared self-driving car, uh, he didn't say you could buy it. He said it would be available for sharing, car sharing. By 2025, I think you'll be able to buy cars like that. So by 2030 or so, roughly half the cars on the road will be self-driving. By 2040, we'll be talking about closing highways to human-driven cars because uh, human drivers are so dangerous. So what kind of infrastructure do we need? We need to maintain the infrastructure we've got. We need to fill the potholes. We might need to have uh, some consistent signage for things like road detours. I'm not sure a self-driving car would understand an upside-down road detour sign, which means Turn left, don't turn right, which is what, what it would say if it was uh, upside up. Uh, but those are minor things. Uh, really, uh, for self-driving cars, are going to use existing infrastructure. What about transit, though? Self-driving cars are going to have a huge impact on transit. The Maryland wants to spend $3 billion building the Purple Line, and uh, my argument is that's going to be totally obsolete long before uh, that line is uh, worn out. <clears throat> Let's just look at the cost of driving. Right now, Americans spend about a trillion dollars a year on their automobiles. And we drive about 2.7 trillion miles a year, which works out to about $0.40 a mile. Since we have an average of about 1 and 2 thirds person per car, that's $0.25 a passenger mile. Well, look at transit. Transit fares are all hovering around $0.25 a passenger mile. That's because they're trying to compete with the automobile. But if you don't have a car and uh, Ford out there or Uber or General Motors and Lyft have self-driving cars out there and you can call them up on your smartphone and they might be charging you 40 cents or even 50 cents a vehicle mile to uh, use their shared self-driving car, you look out the window and it's snowing or it's raining or it's... uh, 90 degrees and 90% humidity. Do you really want to walk to a transit station when you can push a button on your phone and have a car come to your door and pick you up, take you to where you want to go? And if there's two of you, it's cheaper than taking transit. If it's one of you, it might be a little more expensive than taking transit. You can imagine, with those kinds of alternatives available, that uh, light rail trains and buses are going to be running a lot emptier than they are today. When we add in subsidies, the picture changes even more. Last year, we spent about, uh, 2015, $73 billion subsidizing highways. That's a lot more than usual. Usually, it's been about $40 billion a year. But at $73 billion, that's only 2.6 cents per passenger mile. That's for cars. Uh, that's for cars. When you add in trucks and buses and things like that, the cost is even lower. By comparison, Subsidies to transit, just operations and maintenance subsidies, not counting the capital cost, are 41 to a dollar 41 cents to a dollar six per passenger mile. So decision makers are going to be looking at declining transit ridership and saying, "Why are we spending all this money subsidizing transit when uh, we could just put people in self-driving cars? Maybe give people vouchers uh, who don't have uh, high incomes." Uh, low-income vouchers, and they can use it for their self-driving cars. What is what do the implications of self-driving cars have for building new infrastructure? Well, if you have a really, really congested area, you might need new infrastructure. But self-driving cars are going to reduce the need for building new infrastructure and congestion. They're going to re- they're going to reduce congestion because the cars can operate closer together. Most congestion is caused by slow human reflexes. Computers have faster reflexes. You'll be able to fit more cars on the road. Where you do need to build new infrastructure, I think you ought to build it out of user fees, not rely on general funds at all. Now, that might mean a public-private partnership. And there's a certain kind of public-private partnership that's usually used for roads. It's called a demand-risk partnership. That's where the private partner puts up the money, collects the user fees, and pays back the cost of, putting, of of building the infrastructure out of the user fees. And the public, public takes no risk at all. All the risk is taken by the private partner. And guess what? Uh, infrastructure, as, as Ron at already mentioned, infrastructure that's uh, operated privately tends to be better maintained than infrastructure that's operated publicly. Infrastructure that's operated publicly but operated out of user fees tends to be better maintained than infrastructure that's operated publicly but operated out of general tax dollars. So for example, uh, our state highways are operated out of uh, user fees, tolls and gas taxes, and our local roads tend to be operated out of uh, uh, general funds. So uh, the percentage, you've all heard about bridges falling down and things like that. The number of bridges that are actually uh, what's called structurally deficient has declined by more than 50% in the last 25 years from a hundred, almost 140,000 to about 55,000 today. Almost all of that decline has been state bridges, and uh, most of the bridges are a disproportionate share of the bridges that are remaining, that are structurally deficient, are local bridges. So uh, if we can get those local roads on a, a user fee basis, they'll be better managed. Similarly, with rail transit, uh, we have huge infrastructure problems, huge, uh, a huge infrastructure backlog, and now agencies are starting to turn to public-private partnerships to, to build rail transit, such as this commuter rail line that was built in Denver and opened up last year. But that's a different kind of public-private partnership than a demand-risk partnership that's used for roads. This is called an availability-payment partnership, which means that the, public, the private partner borrows the money, spends it, And then the public partner pays the private partner back. And uh, it doesn't matter whether anybody rides the train or not or any fares collected, the public partner is obligated, in this case, to pay $5 million a month to keep that train running to the private partner. And so really, it's as if the public partner borrowed the money, but the public agency didn't want to uh, exceed its debt limit, and so it let the private partner borrow the money, and uh, it doesn't show up on the agency's books. Now, there's two problems with this kind of, of system. First of all, if, uh, if you're not worrying about paying for it out of user fees, your costs just go way up because you don't care. Somebody else is paying for it. So the very first light rail, modern light rail line built in America was built in 1980, And in today's dollars, after adjusting for inflation, it costs about $15 million a mile. Today, the average cost of light rail is $163 million. And there are some that are spectacularly more expensive. Uh, Seattle just completed one that costs $626 million a mile. Uh, Los Angeles has just decided to build one that's going to cost $980 million a mile. It's not going to be able to carry any more people than that line that was built in 1980 that only cost uh, $15 million a mile. So because we're not worrying about earning a profit, we're just spending wildly and building all kinds of infrastructure that we won't be able to afford to maintain. And that's the second problem. If you can't afford to build it out of user fees, you're not going to be able to afford to maintain it out of user fees until you get situations like this. The Washington metro system, we all know, is falling apart. But it's not just Washington metro. It's Chicago's Chicago Transit Authority. It's uh, MBTA in Boston. It's SEPTA in Philadelphia. They're all having serious, serious infrastructure problems because they're relying on tax dollars. The federal government helped to pay to build these lines. Or in some cases, they were privately built back when they were profitable. Local governments pay to operate them, and nobody's paying to maintain them, and so they're falling apart. I think instead of paying to maintain, putting up more tax dollars to maintain rail systems that uh, are losing tremendous amounts of money, it's time to think about replacing them with buses. This is a busway in Istanbul. It, it moves 200, more than 250 buses an hour. Each of those buses, this is a... Larger bus than we use in the United States and it can hold 200 passengers, but even using a bus uh, That would be found in the United States. This busway can move more people per hour than the Washington subway system So we can use buses ex- every- Anywhere there are rails in the United States with the exception of New York City buses can substitute for rails They can move people faster safer uh, and far less ex- expensively Uh, Denver has recently opened two new rail lines and a new bus line. The bus line goes the fastest. It goes 41 miles an hour, and the rail lines go about 20 to 30. Uh, The bus line costs the least, and it's the only one that didn't have a huge cost overrun. It goes on the same lanes that individual cars go on, but they they told them to make sure that they're never congested, so the bus is always on time. It doesn't ever get caught in congestion, and these lanes are uh, If, if, uh, because of self-driving cars, buses get rendered obsolete, these lanes can be opened to self-driving cars, which you can't do with rail lines. You don't even need to spend a lot of money on these. These are some high-occupancy toll lanes built in Salt Lake City. The only difference between the high-occupancy lane and the other lanes is there's a white stripe painted between them. And so uh, uh, they don't spend a lot of money building it. They just paint the white stripe and then say the left lane is for high-occupancy vehicles or toll-paying vehicles only. So infrastructure can be cheap, infrastructure can be effective, uh, and it can be flexible if we rely on buses and if we rely on, uh, increasingly rely on things like self-driving cars, uh, rather than spending a lot of money on rails and other obsolete technologies. Thank you very much.
0: Thanks a lot, Randall. Listening to all these uh, speakers, the diversity of ideas and topics uh, here is extraordinary. But you know, it made me think: what ties all of these uh, things together? And what ties them all together uh, is that the federal government has a huge uh, power over all of these different technologies uh, and transportation uh, modes. Um, even though some of these uh, things, like urban transit, are purely uh, you know city operations uh, owned uh, locally by cities uh, and states because the federal government uh, hands out aid uh, to state and local governments for all of these modes of transportation, uh, aviation, uh, uh, bus, uh, light rail, uh, and highways, uh, the federal government aid uh, has a lot of power determining what local governments do. Uh, and all the regulations that come with the aid uh, related to safety and, and economic uh, returns and that sort of thing uh, are very powerful. So that leads, I'm going to uh, uh, open up with uh, one question to the panelists. And we can open it up uh, to all you folks uh, to raise uh, questions on any of these topics. And you know, given the, the, uh, all, all this power that the federal government has is really centered in one person, uh, now in the new administration and that's the uh, new Secretary of transportation Elaine Chow uh, she oversees uh, the highway uh, program uh, the transit program uh, and the aviation program uh, aid to airports and air traffic control uh, you know uh, what do we know about her priorities um, and you know how much power is she going to have to push reform uh, in this administration and which direction do you think she's going to go and maybe uh, uh, each of our panelists want to address that. she
1: she's off to a good start uh, recently, because she rejected, reject, but has delayed, a last-minute uh, huge grant to uh, San Francisco area right? that would essentially be part of a high-speed rail program.
0: There. Right.
1: And it was a $600 million grant. And uh, now, remain to see whether it ultimately gets rejected, but that's a, that, that she, I think she's off to a great start there.
2: Yeah, um, it's, I think it's too early to say we don't have um, key personnel in place, uh, 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 nor do we have uh, any iron, uh, uh, you know, ironclad policies put out there. But uh, I've been encouraged by her uh, stated openness to uh, increasing private sector involvement uh, in the provision of infrastructure uh, and also looking at the uh, bloated uh, regulars, uh, regulatory state. Um, uh, of transportation, so um, right now I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic, uh, but uh, we'll have to wait and see.
3: I would say I'm I'm, I'm rather
2: optimistic as well. Uh,
3: she was actually Deputy Secretary of Transportation in the first George Bush administration, and if you look at her priorities then, they were definitely free market friendly. Uh, she's a supporter of public-private partnerships. She uh, is also very interested in air traffic control reform. Looks like she's going to be taking a trip to Canada to actually see how their system works. Uh, She's the former, I mean, her father owned a shipping business, so she's been in the transportation uh, area from a business perspective and understands some of the problems inherent in sort of all of this government control. And the early folks that she's named um, have been pretty good she's gotten some folks involved in the p3 world um, and in the investing world that she's already um named or donald trump has named so yeah it's early but so far so good
0: great so we can go to the audience for questions if you want to uh uh, wait till the microphone gets to you because we're videotaping this uh so we can get you on tape uh uh, maybe down uh front here in in the red jacket
5: Hi, my name is Contessa Bourbon from the New York Times. Uh, Can you please explain the possibility of expanding the tolling system so as to finance um, highway projects?
0: Uh, Highway tolling, do
5: you
4: want to? Are you talking about the legal possibility or the technical possibility? Because the technical possibilities are infinite. Um, I'm I'm from Oregon. Oregon was the first state to have a gas tax and and dedicate that money to highways. And now Oregon is the first state to be extensively testing a mileage-based user fee system. I was one of the first volunteers in the testing system. They sent me a little GPS thing that I plug into my car. The GPS transmits to a private company uh, how much I drive, and the private company tells the state uh, how much I owe them, uh, and that's all. And so uh, I don't feel like my privacy is being invaded. That system can be used to have variable tolling uh, on on congested roads that will relieve congestion. That system can be used to make sure that local governments get their share of the money. So when I drive on a local road rather than a state highway, uh, my money goes to the owner of that road rather than the state. Uh, So I see this as very uh, positive, and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing it adopted nationwide. I think it'll probably end up being transitioned in where the uh, uh, state might say all new cars have to use this system and old cars can still use the existing gas tax system for so many years.
2: Yeah, and to speak to some of the specific legal barriers, um, you know, we have a, a prohibition on states tolling their own interstate segments uh, with, a, with a limited uh, exemption for a, uh, a, a tiny pilot program. Um, so I think, uh, as Randall said, uh, these barriers um, uh, set by Congress would need to be eliminated before we'd see any significant expansion of, of tolling. And in particular, if you'd want to see more private investment uh, in uh, uh, public-private toll roads, uh, absolutely, financing reform would be would be key to that as well. So it's a it's up to Congress.
0: Uh, maybe down down front here.
5: I'm Mitzi Wertheim, I'm a total novice about this. So I kept thinking about how you could tell the story so the general public could understand it. It's unbelievably complicated, (laughs) but I think we have to start educating our public so they get behind these ideas and don't just assume if it's coming from Cato, it's right wing and therefore we don't like it. I mean, I heard a lot of good ideas here, but most people don't understand it. And I'm, I would beg you to put it into visual charts to sort of show what w- the changes would be and the compared to what charts. Anyway, it's just a suggestion.
0: I think that's a, that's a very, good, very good suggestion. Uh, maybe in the second row uh, down front here.
5: Ann Stone, um, I have a question about Uh, Any advice you all have to get the transportation industry to accept new technologies? For example, you talk about, you know, redoing bridges and roads. There are materials that are a lot better than concrete and asphalt that are out there now, and we're not using it. Um, In fact, there's one person I know that invented something that's used to fill potholes in Minnesota and I think Kentucky. And the, the filler is so effective, the road crumbles around it, and the potholes fill Remains Well, why don't they do the entire road out of it? Um, also bridges, we know one of the problems using concrete, they catch on fire. They burn, they melt, they, they collapse. There are materials where they can be built that are fireproof. So how do we get the government to look at these new technologies so that if we're going to rebuild infrastructure, we do it smart and we don't do it stupid?
2: Well, I, think, I think starting, uh, we need to start with um, procure, uh, procurement reform uh, and requiring uh, yeah, open pro- uh, procurement and competitive bidding. Um, a lot of these problems, while there are many at the, at the federal and state level with the, with the procurement rules, um, really go down to the local level where you have uh, municipal engineers uh, who have been doing the same thing for 20 years, have relationships with specific suppliers. Um, And you see this across the entire, uh, not just for transportation infrastructure, but it's uh, uh, notorious in the water and wastewater uh, sector. So I think uh, uh, open procurement, competitive bidding, start there and then uh, see what happens.
1: I think more, more private ownership would also be helpful because the problem you have in in procurement process is the low bidder wins. <laughs> and that's not to say that they're necessarily cheating anybody, but in fact there there's an incentive to use less expensive materials. And a lot of the materials you're talking about are more expensive, but they last longer. But nobody really cares about that at the bidding process. You, are you, the contractor, are obligated to finish a product to a certain standard, and it doesn't make any difference whether it lasts 10 years, Or 30 years. Now, if you're a private owner, you have a great deal of incentive in using materials that will last. 30 years, if there is a sufficient payback and it's justified, then they will do it. So you ha- you have a system now that, that has no internal s- incentives to adopt technology because invariably the technologies are, are more expensive. And in, in the public sector, there's no way to capture that gain,
0: so. The, this is one of the, the widely discussed advantages of so-called public-private partnerships, like the, the, the company that uh, built uh, and is uh, now operating and managing the Capital Beltway. Uh, toll lane expansions they're responsible for they've designed built and they will operate for the, the long term So they have an incentive to use materials and procedures and structures that that minimize their long-term costs uh, Maybe back down over here
6: Hi, I'm Art Gazzetti with the American Public Transportation Association. Uh, Thanks for the invitation to be here. Uh, Comments on private sector participation, that is indeed a good thing, and some references were made about uh, places in transit, uh, particularly where there is a private sector, the the Denver project. We're on the cusp of the Purple Line here in the region, uh, Florida, Texas, passenger rail projects. But even beyond that, uh, my question is, uh, it, it really a, a straight question uh, uh, for an answer. Is there a, a appreciation that not all projects might be private sector, that many will be, but some are, are, are not going to quite work it under that model? That has been discussion in some congressional hearings. It's not going to be for everything. I would accept that point of view. I'm just wondering if the panel uh, uh, views it that way or not.
0: I mean, I'll give you my view on that. I, you know, I'm for diversity. I'm for federalism. So I think the problem now is that because so much uh, federal money uh, and top-down uh, regulatory authority is involved here, uh, we're not giving the states enough uh, chance to go their own diverse ways. Uh, I don't know what the uh, the best solutions for, for all the different cities you, you mentioned are. I, but I would like uh, state and local governments to be making decisions without the distortions that I think federal aid and regulatory uh, mandates
4: uh, create and art you know i'm a rail nut i love trains i ride amtrak a lot in fact the next time i come to washington dc i'm taking amtrak from oregon which will be a uh, the route i'm taking will be a four-day trip um, and so i i once was open to that idea but the more i've looked at urban transit the more i realized that once you open the door uh to saying okay, we're not going to worry about making a profit. We're not going to worry about covering our costs. You know, the Washington metro system, they said fares were going to cover 100% of operating costs and 80% of the capital costs. And then it was 50% of the capital costs. And then it was none of the capital costs. And then it was 50% of the operating costs. Uh, so once you open the door, it just gets more and more expensive, more and more bloated. Uh, you build things that you shouldn't have built in the first place, shouldn't have considered in the first place because they were just too expensive. Uh, and... and there has to be a line, and I think if the line is, it's got to be able to cover its own costs. Whether it's public or private, I care less about that than whether it's going to cover its own costs out of the the fees paid by the people who are using it. So and maybe we ought to have another session, and you and I can debate that.
3: Art, <laughs> I mean, I would say we, we have this discussion internally at Reason, and... <sighs> to be to be perhaps a tad controversial if there are truly areas people of need that can't be served in the private market maybe we would be open to looking at that and how it could you know some some sort of public funding the challenge is right now it seems like a lot of rail projects, particularly rail projects and even some bus projects, are being built for choice riders, not transit-dependent riders. In my personal view, is that the transit-dependent riders, which are folks that do not have a car, don't have transportation any other way, if we're providing some sort of government funding, um, you know, especially federal, but you know, local and state, that should be our priority and I don't think it is right now. So I guess, you know, in theory, I think you raise a good point, at least in my mind, but I think we need some reforms as to how we're doing it currently.
0: Maybe down uh, front here.
6: (laughs) Thank you very much, uh, Michael Kurtzig. I live in China part of the year. I've taken the Chinese high-speed trains. I've been in France and taken the high-speed train and in Japan high-speed train. This country seems to be a natural for high-speed trains. It's huge. The distances are huge. Why aren't we emphasizing that? Why, what is the problem of not making New York an hour from here or flying uh, going from uh, Miami to, to Washington the way you do from Shanghai to Beijing in five hours? That would take a tremendous load off the roads, it seems to me, and off the highways also. So what is the problem? Is it a political problem, a, a money problem? What is the problem there? Thank you.
4: Uh, The problem is we have this newfangled invention called airplanes. They go faster than high-speed trains. They're cheaper than high-speed trains. They don't require a heck of a lot of extremely precisely maintained infrastructure, so they're cheaper to maintain than high-speed trains. California, uh, in 1995, an economist estimated that it would cost $10 billion to build a high-speed train from Los Angeles to San Francisco, and at that cost... He said, high-speed trains, would it would cost more to move a passenger from Los Angeles to San Francisco by train than by car or by plane. It would be far cheaper by plane. It would be a little cheaper by car, he found. Today, the projected cost is $100 billion. Uh, there's no way that that's going to be competitive with, with flying. Flying... Los Angeles has five airports. San Francisco has four. You can fly from an airport to where you near where you live to where you want it to one where you want to go. Uh, the high-speed train is going to go downtown to downtown. Well, that's fine if you're downtown, but only eight percent of Americans live or work downtown anymore. So that's not going to be convenient for ninety-two percent of Americans. High-speed trains are a natural solution for Tokyo to Osaka. The rest of the world. Uh, France, Spain, other countries have gone hundreds of billions of dollars or or tens of billions of dollars in debt because of them, uh, and they're not providing satisfactory transportation in those areas.
0: Two two quick points. There's been numerous stories in the Wall Street Journal and elsewhere about what uh, boondoggles a lot of the Chinese infrastructure uh, projects, including their uh, high-speed trains are. Uh, Randall has an excellent essay up at downsizinggovernment.org, a Cato site uh, on exactly those issues that you raised. Uh, Maybe down the middle here.
2: Thank you very much. I'm Andrea Glorioso from the delegation of the European Union to the U.S. here in Washington, D.C. And this was extremely interesting, but because this is not really my topic, I deal with digital technologies, it was a lot of data to process, so maybe I missed it in the panel, and I apologize in advance, but in all the calculation for the cost that I've seen that uh, our environmental costs included in the calculations, uh, and it's a very... Honest and not biased, a loaded question. Do we have numbers whether, for example, a massive increase in, elect- in uh, autonomous cars will be environmentally less costly in the long term than using trains or planes or any other means of
0: transportation? So the, env- the environmental yeah. impact of yeah. that? Yeah, um,
4: we do have a lot of numbers on that. And what we know is that uh, with 85% of all our travel is by car, and uh, maybe 1% of travel is by rail, counting both urban rail and intercity rail, it's it's probably less than 1%. If if we could double that rail, rail uses maybe 20% less energy than cars, and maybe emits less, 20% less pollution than cars, maybe, a lot of rail systems actually do worse, but let's say it emitted 20% less, let's say we could double rail, that means we'd be reducing pollution uh, emissions by uh, you know a fraction of a percent. It's much more effective to go for that 85% and try to get more people to drive Priuses or more people to drive electric cars or something like that. Uh, you only have to get a small percentage of people to change there and you get large, large changes. We know that works because in 1970, uh, you couldn't see across town because air pollution was so thick in the United States. Maybe not quite as bad as Beijing is today, but I think in some cities it was as bad as Beijing was today. And we tried a two-pronged approach to fix it. We, we made cars cleaner, and we tried to get people out of their cars on the transit. Uh, in 1970, the average American rode transit 50 times a year. We've spent a half a trillion dollars improving transit since then. And today, the average American rides it 40 times a year. That didn't work. so. On the other hand, making cars cleaner worked. Today, we only have less than 10% as much pollution as being emitted by all cars as was being emitted uh, uh, in 1970. Uh, and that means each car is emitting that much less pollution because we actually have more cars being driven or more miles being driven today than we did in
0: 1970. Maybe, uh, maybe two more questions uh, down uh, front here, maybe. Oh, yeah.
7: <laughs> Thank you very much. It's always good to see you, Mr. O'Toole, especially because you have such great visuals to support some of your ideas and initiatives, and that makes it interesting, and I love your ties, by the way. I've said that many times. (laughs) I wanted to ask you, what is your observation of D.C.? You spent a lot of time in Oregon and Portland, I would assume. What is your observation of what could be done better in this showcase, the nation's capital, which recently hosted the inaugurations, which every four (laughs) years we do that? Uh, There are some problems right in front of Union Station, for instance, cosmetic, as you cross over the crosswalks on Massachusetts Avenue, you can see that there's an egregious negligence in the um, restoration of the asphalt, et cetera. And in front of Union Station, the fountains, et cetera, federal, some of the federal areas could could use some work. So what are your thoughts about how we could better showcase the nation's capital and where would we, is this a federal issue or more of a local city issue?
4: I think this is definitely a local issue, and the federal government has has distorted uh, the system too too much to uh, uh, make the locals behave rationally. Uh, for example, the 8th Street streetcar cost what? 100 million dollars? 200 million dollars, and you know it's essentially providing zero transportation function, uh, and and it's it's such a failure that they want to expand it. They want to build more, right? Um, Portland has built, uh, I think, more miles of streetcar lines than anybody else, and they want to build 140 miles. The city of Portland has 5,000 miles of streets, uh, and those 5,000 miles of streets are in desperate need of repair. Over half of them are in poor or very poor condition, and the cost of 140 miles of streetcars would be more than paving every single one of those 5,000 miles of streets. Now, I haven't done the numbers for Washington, D.C., but I wouldn't be surprised if, if the streetcar, grandiose streetcar plans that they've written up for Washington, D.C. are more than the cost of paving every single street in Washington, D.C. Uh, the metro system is an embarrassment. When I first came to Washington a, f- a couple years after it was built, it was like entering into 2001, a space odyssey, when you'd go into a station. And today, it's like entering into Blade Runner. Uh, and, It's because they settled on a technology that was too expensive, a technology that we can't afford to maintain. We need to start thinking about using different technologies that we can afford rather than uh, what we thought were 2001 technologies but what in fact were 1901 technologies.
0: Okay, last question, down front here.
2: Yeah, uh, John Wetmore with pedestrians.org. There hasn't been much mention here of the non-motorized modes, walking, bicycling. Does anybody have any thoughts about those and infrastructure investment?
4: Well, I actually bicycle more than I drive in the summers anyway. I used to do it year-round. And I... I think bicycles can be compatible with cars, but it's clear that a lot of people don't feel comfortable cycling, and so they need to have a little bit of separation. I think there are very cheap ways of doing that, like uh, take a major uh, arterial and find a street that's parallel to it that isn't major at all and turn it into what's called a bicycle boulevard. Uh, that means minimize the number of stop signs and stoplights that, that bicycle streets have. To, the bicyclists on those streets have to deal with and uh, put a few little chicanes and barriers in to keep cars from using it as a through street but still allow cars as local traffic. That's a very cheap solution for, for bicycles. It's been tried in Berkeley and other places and it works very well. You don't have to spend millions of dollars a mile on special bike lanes and things like that. For where you do have to spend money on bicycles, uh, um, I think a, bi- a tax on bicycle tires would be a good thing. <laughs> they wear out fairly fast. Uh, And they they wear out according to how much you bicycle. And so if you tax the tires, um, you can raise some money. The more people bicycle, the more tax they pay, the more money you raise. Uh, And then at least bicyclists would be able to say that they're paying at least a share of the cost of of the roads they're using.
2: Um, I, I think uh, it's, it's important, so, let me just start by saying I'm generally skeptical of the federal role in transportation, uh, but if we are going to have a federal role in transportation, I think the projects that are funded or financed um, ought to be nationally significant. Um, I don't think there's really a a, a a way to make that argument for pedestrian and bicycle infrastructure. I think those are entirely local Uh, issues and uh, but I do have no problem with um, with cities deciding to uh, to put in uh, bicycle and pedestrian infrastructure I just don't think there's there's a federal role there
0: all right thanks uh, everyone for coming Uh, the lunch will be served upstairs so you go out the door and down and up the spiral staircase and into the back of the building Uh, thank you